Thank you, Missy. Good to see you here this morning. Wonderful job with that song. Take your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Luke chapter number 1. Luke chapter number 1. This morning we not only start our observance of the Christmas season here at the church, but we start a new series. And because the study of Luke begins with the story of Jesus' birth, I decided to just continue with Luke as our new study. The Gospel of Luke is significant for a number of things. It was written by Luke, the physician, companion of the Apostle Paul. It is not only the longest book in the New Testament, but it is also unique in what it reports. Over 50% of Luke's gospel is unique and not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Of the 51 parables spoken by Christ, 35 of them are found in Luke, and 19 of those are found only in Luke. Of the 35 miracles given in the Gospels, 20 are found in Luke, and 7 of them are found nowhere else. The very last words of the Old Testament are found in Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. They read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming ungrateful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. The Gospel of Luke breaks a silence that has lasted over 400 years. Luke begins precisely at the place where the prophet Malachi left off. Luke begins his story with the angelic announcement of Gabriel to Zacharias, or Zechariah, an elderly priest, that he and his wife will have a son, a son who will bring in the spirit of the Elijah the prophet, and who will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will prepare the way of the Lord." The first thing that I want you to note with me this morning is an unassuming introduction beginning in verse number 5. We are introduced to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. There was in the days of Herod the king of Judah a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. The first thing that we'll notice, of course, is that they were obscure and insignificant. Luke introduces Zacharias in verse 5 by saying... A certain priest, not the most glowing adjective uh, to describe him, not necessarily a wonderful priest, a brilliant priest, but a certain priest, just one of many priests serving in the temple. Both Zechariah and his wife were from priestly lines, 
sons and daughters of Aaron. They were good people, but they were not important people. They lived in an obscure little village in the hill country of Judah. Zechariah was an ordinary country priest, one of perhaps as many as 18 to 20,000 priests estimated to be living in Palestine at the time. Because there were so many of them, they were divided into 24 groups. Each group would serve at the temple for a week at a time, twice a year. When it was time for his division to serve, he went up to Jerusalem. The second thing that we note is that they were devout and righteous. More important than their physical lineage, their pedigree, was their spiritual devotion. Luke describes them as righteous before God. And he says that they were blameless. Although not conveying that they were perfect, it does set them apart from their peers in the way that they walked with God. They were also elderly and childless. Their only sorrow was that they had no children. In that day and age, to be childless bore a huge stigma. Many Jews believed that to have no children was evidence of a curse from God. And therefore, there must be some sign of a great wickedness in their lives. All their lives, they have borne the stigma of being childless. And now they're in their 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever it may be. And there is no longer any hope. Secondly, I want you to notice the unexpected interruption. They were dutiful, but not expectant. Verse 8 says, So it was that while he was serving as a priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense. Every day, one of the priests from the rotation would be chosen by lot to burn incense in the holy place. Because there were so many priests, they were only allowed to burn the incense once in their lifetimes. And still, there were those priests who never got a chance to do it. For a priest to receive the honor of burning of the incense was the greatest day of his whole life. In this case, the lot fell to Zechariah. And in an instant, he was at the crowning moment of his ministry. Crowning moment of his personal service as a priest. This was without a doubt the greatest day in all of his life. Zechariah's duty took him into the holy place. That is the part of the temple that was reserved only for the priest. It is not, however, the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. Only the high priest could enter there, and then only one time each year on the Day of Atonement. Zechariah's duty was to burn incense on the altar of incense, which was within the holy place which the priest could enter, And it was a 
picture of the prayers of God's people rising up to God as a pleasing aroma. Notice also that they were faithful but fearful. There can be little doubt that his heart was filled with both awe and fear as he stepped into the holy place. He was literally only feet from the holy of holies. Only a curtain kept him from the place reserved for the holy of holies. Verse 9 says, when he went into the temple of the Lord and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw it, he was troubled and fear fell on him. Gabriel spoke and prophecy, which had ceased at the close of the Old Testament, occurred for the first time in 400 years. It is worthy of note that the angel did not make his announcement to the king. Herod, Herod the Great is who he was referred to, is an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau and not even a Jew. Neither did he make his announcement to the high priest, but to an ordinary but faithful priest serving God in the temple. The the text says that Zacharias was troubled and fear fell upon him. I think that's a tremendous understatement. He wasn't just startled. He was terrified at the sight of of the angel Gabriel. This angel was not a cherub, a naked baby with wings. This wasn't just any angel. He was Gabriel. He was and is a glorious, powerful, awesome servant of God. Zacharias was going about his religious duties, but he never envisioned actually meeting God. I wonder what that says about our own attendance in worship services. We come to worship God. But do we have any idea that we might actually meet up with him? Like so many of us today, he seems to have believed in God, but never have expected that God would work in his own life. He served God but he was not ready when God spoke to him personally. He did not live with the expectation of God acting in his life. Think of how you would have felt in that awesome place when suddenly you realize you're not alone. There was another person present with you, and that person was a messenger of God. And then notice with me the unbelieving, the unbelieved promise. Fear and comfort. Verse 13 reveals that the angel's first words were words of comfort. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias. You'll notice in Scripture that is often what the angels have to begin with. 
do not be afraid. But the angel's next words are a bombshell. The angel continues, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. He assures Zechariah that all of his prayers have been heard. It is doubtful that Zechariah was at that moment praying for a son. It is more likely that at that moment he was praying for the redemption of Israel as he entered that holy place. But Gabriel assures him that all of his prayers have been heard over all of the years. And that now his prayers for a son and his prayers for the redemption of Israel will be answered at one and the same time. The angel tells him that his wife will bear a son and they will give his name John. John or Johan in scripture in Hebrew means God has been gracious or God has shown favor. And then he begins to tell Zechariah about his son's character. Verse 14, it says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. This man, John, who would be called the Baptist because of his requirement that people be baptized as a sign of their repentance, was to be an extraordinary man. John would be especially consecrated to God all the days of his life, as Samson should have been. Jesus would later say of John, in Luke chapter 7, verse 28, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And then the angel talks about his ministry. He says in verse 16, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John's great work would be to prepare the way of the Messiah by turning hearts to God before the Messiah came. The pattern of his ministry was to be like that of Elijah, literally in the spirit and power of Elijah. But I want you to notice that there are two added words in your translation of verse 17. The last two words of verse 17 for him. The verse literally says, a people prepared. The two words are added so that we understand prepared for what? Prepared for the coming of the Lord. The ministry of John the Baptist was linked in human history between those times when God spoke 
at various times and in various ways through the prophets. And now a new period in which God is about to speak to men through his son. Verse 18, doubt and proof. Zechariah's response in verse 18 was a question. How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. The truth is, we all long for certainty in life. We crave some assurance that the things that we believe are real. The story of Zechariah is the story of just such a struggle. In spite of Zechariah's godliness, in spite of his obedience to the law, in spite of his lifetime service in ministry, he still struggled to believe such a promise. Zechariah said, how can I be sure? I think that's kind of funny from our perspective because most of us figure, God, if you would just show me a sign, send an angel or something like that, and I'll never doubt again. But here's Zechariah, and he receives all of that, and he's still not enough. Zechariah says, how can I be sure? He uses an emphatic statement when he says, for I am an old man. Gabriel, in case you didn't notice, I'm elderly. Even more important, perhaps, my wife is elderly. It's long past time that we will have a child. There are several reasons that Zechariah, as a man of faith, should not have doubted. First, Scripture gives proof of many times in the past when God has intervened in such a way. There are a number of supernatural births in the Old Testament. God was not promising to do for Zechariah and Elizabeth something that he had never done before. And if God had done it before, certainly he can do it again. Secondly, Zechariah was a priest. He was a man whose life had been characterized by faith, he should have known better. Finally, he was confronted by an angelic being, so he knew that the message was from God. We must conclude that since Zechariah was an upright man, whose life was characterized by faith, his failure in this particular point is a deviation from his normal life. In response to Zechariah's request, the angel says in verse 19, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the days these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their own time. So Gabriel counters Zechariah's lack of faith by using his own words. You may be an old man, but I am Gabriel. Zechariah is asking, how can I be sure? And in effect, he is saying, I need a sign. Many of the Bible commentaries and commentators say that Zechariah's 
inability to speak was punishment for his lack of belief. Gabriel does say, because you did not believe my words. But that alone does not necessarily mean that he was being punished. It's certainly possible that it was punishment. But it could be that Gabriel simply gave Zechariah what he asked for, a sign. Now, no doubt it is not the sign he was looking for, but it was definitely a sign. He is to be temporarily unable to speak until the birth of his son, and he sees the fulfillment of the promise. The task that was given to Zechariah was one that could be performed in a relatively short time. The longer he delayed coming back from the Holy of Holies, from the holy place, greater the concern of those who waited became. They may have wondered if he had been struck dead. It had happened before. When Zechariah did appear, in verse 21, he couldn't speak. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. So when Zechariah emerged from the holy place... He was supposed to stand on the temple steps overlooking the crowd and produce, pronounce a blessing on the people. And the other priests would repeat it after him. But there was an awkward silence. Zechariah could not speak. Zechariah must have found it difficult completing those days of his ministry, not only because of the handicap about being unable to speak, but because of his excitement. No doubt he could hardly wait to return to his home and tell his wife the good news. Something for you to think about. When we do not believe God's promise for our lives, it does not necessarily destroy the promise, but it does destroy our ability to enjoy the promise. What made Zacharias' inability to communicate so difficult was that he had such great news to tell. Verse 24 tells us now after these things, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself five months saying, thus the Lord has dwelt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. God kept his promise just as he always does. And Elizabeth, in spite of her years, conceived a child. As Jeremiah the prophet says in Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen, there is nothing too hard for the Lord. Not only was she to have a son, but the birth of her son was evidence that the Messiah was coming. These were exciting days indeed. Charles Swindoll offers that the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth has some things to teach us about understanding how God works. First of all, our impossibilities are only platforms upon which God is able to do his best work. When you've come to the end of your hope, you come to the end of yourself, 
hope that a certain family member will be changed or or be saved. Hope that a medical problem that you're faced with will be resolved. Hope that you will never find the right job. Remember that nothing frustrates God. Secondly, God's delays are not denials. Never confuse a wait for a no. God may simply be saying, not now, not right now. When faced with a wait, we can either allow it to cause doubt or we can use that time to grow in our spiritual walk. And third, when God does not choose to intervene, and even when he does, it is always for his glory and our good. Perhaps some of you came to this place today asking the question that Zachariah asked. How can I be sure? I want you to know that it is possible to leave here with your question answered. Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. Let's pray. Father, it may be that there are some here today who have come seeking certainty about spiritual things. They they are experiencing a struggle. They have fear. Their life is not where they want it to be right now. I pray that you'd help them to give that fear and that struggle over to Jesus. I pray that they might find certainty, the certainty that only in a a relationship with Jesus can bring. Father, we thank you for your word, that it's always reliable and always sure and always can be applied to our lives. Father, help us this morning as we turn this time over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.